Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Adults age 65 and older are more likely than younger people to suffer from cardiovascular disease, which is problems with the heart, blood vessels, or both. Heart disease is also a major cause of disability limiting activity and eroding quality of life of millions of older people. My guest today is Drew Martin, nurse practitioner with the Cardiology Physician Group at Virginia Hospital Center. He will talk about the impact of aging on the heart and blood vessels, risk factors for cardiovascular disease, and the most common conditions among older adults. He'll also share information about treatments for cardiovascular disease and how to prevent it. So welcome, Drew, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm happy to be here. All right. Well, we've got lots to talk about. This is an important topic and very timely. So as always, I like to give our listeners a bit of a anatomy and physiology lesson. So let's start out by having you explain how does the heart work? Yeah, that's a good question and a great place to start. Um, I would say the way I look at it is heart is at its core a hydraulic pump. Um, it's a hydraulic pump that's tasked with moving blood throughout the body. It's able to move approximately five liters of blood every minute, which is um, almost the entirety of your blood volume that's circulated every minute. Um, and this is to provide oxygen and nutrients to the tissues. Um, the heart beats 3 billion times approximately in a person's life. So um, this is a very durable uh, hydraulic pump. Of course, since this is aging matters, we want to know about what happens as a person ages. What, what are the changes that occur in both the heart and the blood vessels? Yes, yes. So um, typical way to look at age-relating changes is going to be really stiffening and thickening. And the way I would describe that is um, as one ages, um, the blood vessels lose their elasticity. Um, they're soft and flexible when um, early in life. And as through the aging process, the blood vessels start to harden somewhat um, and become thicker. Um, this is the vessels outside of the heart um, do this. And in the heart itself, um, there can be a thickening of the heart muscle um, that can make the heart muscle somewhat less efficient. Um, in, in terms of the heart valves, the four valves that separate the chambers of the heart, um, similar process can happen, either narrowing the valves, making the valves um, 
tighter and less effective at moving blood from one chamber to the next, or um, sometimes there even can be uh, weakening of the structures and the struts that hold up the valves themselves, causing some blood um, to pass the uh, non-intended direction um, or kind of reflux or regurgitate back to uh, other chambers of the heart. Um, broadly speaking, though, stiffening and thickening of the vasculature and, and heart muscle. Well, okay. And with these changes that are occurring, I really want to spend some time on blood pressure. We hear about blood pressure so much and the importance and relationship uh, with cardiovascular disease. So help us understand what is blood pressure? What are the two numbers that you usually hear when someone takes your blood pressure? What, what does that mean? And then Help us also understand what normal blood pressure is as we talk about those two numbers. Sure. Yeah. So blood pressure, as defined, is really the measurable force of blood rushing against the walls of the arteries. Um, this is measured in millimeters of mercury, and that's why you see the abbreviation and documentation is MMHG. Um, this was the first kind of validated uh, way to measure blood pressure. And so we, how do we measure this force of blood rushing against the walls of the artery using a blood pressure cuff? And we derived numbers. Um, the upper number is a bigger number. Uh, that's called the systolic blood pressure. And that's the force of the blood rushing against the arteries when the heart is ejecting blood or when the, the aortic valve is open. Um, so this is essentially the maximal amount of force on the arteries. Um, the lower number is called the diastolic blood pressure. And this is the amount of force on the arterial blood vessels when the heart is resting. Um, and that's how we're able to um, calculate blood pressure, is taking the maximal impulse of the heartbeat and the resting um, pressures on the arteries, and we're able to get two numbers. Uh, normal blood pressure, as defined, is a resting uh, systolic over diastolic blood pressure of less than 120 over 80. One thing I wanted to ask you about that, Drew, I remember when I was in nursing school, and perhaps when you were as well, that it was always 120 over 80. But over time, there has been some variation on those numbers. And I was just wondering, is the norm still 120 over 80, just in terms of normal Give us maybe some parameters within that normal framework that people don't need to be worried if their blood pressure isn't quite 120 over 80. So, well, you know, the, the studies first described uh, normal blood pressure of less than 120 over 80 was a long-term study called the Framingham Heart Study. Um, and this study basically concluded that individuals with resting blood pressures under this level were at a much lower risk of cardiovascular disease or stroke or heart failure than individuals with higher levels. However, this has certainly led to a little bit of confusion of, well, when, when should blood pressure be a problem or when should it be treated? Because um, at, in the same light, um, medicines that are used to lower blood pressures um, aren't benign. Uh, they carry certain risks of making the blood pressure too low. And so depending on uh, patients' um, underlying risk factors or uh, kind of features of known or 
um, established cardiovascular disease or heart disease, um, treatment targets for blood pressure um, can vary. And so in general, um, with someone with no outstanding risk factors, and that's considered fairly low risk, um, initiation of blood pressure medicine um, is typically not considered until someone reaches uh, uh, stage two hypertension, which is systolic blood pressure above 140 over 90. Um, in certain conditions, the, the target uh, threshold would be lower. Um, so uh, really the, the takeaway here is, well, you know, systolic blood pressure of less than 120 or 80 is normal, Someone can have modestly elevated blood pressure above those numbers, and for a variety of individualized factors, um, we would not necessarily treat with medicines. However, I would say just in general, uh, individuals with resting blood pressures above 120 over 80 should certainly be cognizant of the risk of further developing um, hypertension in the future, um, because that kind of zone of modest increased blood pressure, this is your 120 over 80 to say 130 over 85, that kind of territory, while that's not hypertensive, it's what's classically referred to as prehypertensive. Essentially, um, it's, it's at risk of kind of ending up in the hypertensive category at some point in the future, although that's very difficult to predict. So let's talk about that. What, what causes though that higher blood pressure in individuals and and tell us about risk factors why might people start having high blood pressure yeah so this really gets back to what i mentioned earlier about this uh remodeling that occurs uh, during the aging process of the hardening and stiffening of the blood vessels um as one can imagine if you had um a pipe and you were forcing uh fluid down the pipe um heart's case would be blood in the body's case it's blood um if the blood vessels themselves are soft it's stretchy and pliable um the amount of resistance uh, on the blood vessels um or on the heart on the fluid itself um uh would be less right and so because they would be able to adjust to the status of the fluid in the in the vessels themselves and so as you age your ability to adjust to shifts in fluid status um, become kind of less, you lose that kind of efficiency in doing so. And so kind of naturally in the aging process through this hardening and stiffening of the blood vessels, we see in general blood pressures do go up. Um, this is a combination of genetic as well as environmental factors. Um, the environmental factors that are kind of most associated with hypertension are Smoking, for sure, is one of the most modifiable ones. And waking, somewhat associated conditions like sleep apnea and sleep disordered breathing, as well as excessive uh, caffeine or stimulant use or alcohol. Broadly speaking, it's, it's uh, an interplay between the genetics and the environment. And sometimes people hear about high blood pressure as the silent killer. What does that mean? That... I think is a good description because the way hypertension affects different organ systems, it's not something that acutely or quickly affects different organ systems. It's something that um, has its deleterious effects over long periods of time, uh, months, really years and many years at that. And so when we think of the three major organ systems that 
hypertension uh, impacts, and this would be uh, the heart itself. Um, it can weaken the heart muscle. Um, it can cause the development of precocious disease in the blood vessels that feed the heart itself called coronary artery disease. Um, you know, typically, um, it's not until the conditions are much more severe until the heart muscle is very weakened or there's poor blood flow to the heart muscle that one would be symptomatic. So this is something you can go silently for years. And the same thing can be true with the non-cardiac organs that are targeted by hypertension, which really uh, is kidneys and, uh, and the brain in, in the risk of stroke or, or aneurysms. And so these are conditions in which you can have fairly moderate to advanced disease and um, wouldn't have any uh, obvious symptoms in many cases. And if it's actually a silent killer, then does the high blood pressure have to get to a certain point? Do certain things have to happen in one's body before symptoms occur? What symptoms might begin to show themselves? Yeah, and that really kind of goes back to the the target organ. So if we think about the heart, if someone's hypertension was was very uncontrolled for a long period of time, or it was a quick, uh, kind of acute development of hypertension, um, extreme hypertension that can manifest itself with chest discomfort, uh, shortness of breath, um, as it affects the kidneys, um, it can make the kidneys less efficient and develop some level of kidney disease and poor fluid clearance. Um, this could lead to fluid retention and swelling in the legs. Um, and if, uh, someone has very severe high blood pressure. Um, it can cause certain neurological symptoms such as blurred vision and headache as well. Um, and of course, uh, stroke-like symptoms as well, uh, uh, which would be very kind of focal neurological deficits, um, difficult, you know, numbness, uh, um, slurred speech, things like that, stroke-like symptoms. But uh, in general, um, the things that we kind of look out for would be, you know, unanticipated chest discomfort, uh, shortness of breath, uh, swelling of the extremities, or severe headache or visual changes. These symptoms then are going to likely then lead to certain conditions because of the high blood pressure? Um, they can. You know, high blood pressure is a, is a finding. Um, so, you know, it's something that needs to be contextualized. Um, uh, you know, um, if somebody had, you know, five cups of coffee um, and then they went and went for a run and they had a headache and they checked their blood pressure and it was extremely elevated, then that would be, you know, kind of somewhat contextually appropriate for excessive stimulant use and then exacerbated by, say, stress or exercise. Um, um, so, you know, it, with the context matters quite a bit. Um, for an older adult, someone with established hypertension, um, you know, these kind of symptoms should always be taken quite seriously and should prompt um, at least uh, careful and close monitoring of uh, the heart um, and certainly taking a look at the kidney function and the history of, of the hypertension. Okay, and we're going to be talking about some of these uh, conditions that are related to heart disease in a moment. But I did want to ask, given this time of the pandemic, has there been any relationship between high blood pressure and COVID? Yeah, I would say there's kind of two things that I can think of that are pretty germane off the top of my head when it comes to COVID and hypertension. Um, one is that, uh, you know, 
early on in the pandemic and ongoing, um, you know, there was a lot of discussion on, you know, who is at higher risk for severe COVID-19 hospitalization and death. And um, it quickly became apparent that uh, people with cardiovascular disease, hypertension seemed to have a higher risk. Um, it's when we talk about high blood pressure, um, you know, I'm, it's not completely clear that this is something that's kind of independently related to the hypertension, or is it that um, the population that is more likely to have high blood pressure is also more likely to be older and therefore be um, immunocompromised uh, based on age or other disease processes. Um, so, um, but, you know, I think that that's something that we tend to notice that hypertension typically does not occur in isolation, right? Um, when, when you see hypertension, you often see other forms of, uh, you know, cardiovascular related disease, whether it be high cholesterol, um, kidney disease, lung disease, things like that. And so really taking an individualized approach and looking at each patient and kind of assessing risk there. Um, but something slightly related, but I think is important is that also early on in the pandemic, um, it was thought that the COVID-19 virus infects lung tissue by way of a, um, an enzyme called a, a receptor that binds an enzyme called ACE2 that's in the lungs. And so there was some talk that was it safe or was it beneficial or was it harmful for patients to be on medicines that inhibit um, ACE1, these are the ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers in the setting of COVID. Um, and, you know, for a while there, there was a kind of back and forth discussion on maybe patients shouldn't be on these medicines because it would have the potential to make COVID worse. And then there was another back and forth thinking maybe patients should be on prophylactic uh, ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers because that could actually improve outcomes. Um, the, the data at this point doesn't suggest um, either approach. Um, basically, if you have hypertension um, and your doctor has prescribed you either an ACE, ACE inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker, both those medicines are safe to treat your hypertension and aren't going to make your risk for severe COVID worse. All right. And we'll talk a little bit more about that a little later. We've been talking so much about high blood pressure. Can blood pressure also be too low? And if so, what would the symptoms be then? Yeah, kind of a ballpark definition of low blood pressure hypotension tends to be a systolic over diastolic blood pressure of less than 90 over 60. So if this is a huge deviation of, from your norm um, and uh, the symptoms that we're kind of watching for low blood pressure are basically low um, flow state to the major vital organs. And so this, if this would result in lightheadedness, dizziness, or sleeping spells, shortness of breath, and lethargy generally. All right. I wanted to get into some of the diseases, I believe, relating to cholesterol is arteriosclerosis. Am I correct there? Yes. So tell us some more about arteriosclerosis and what is the relationship between arteriosclerosis and high blood pressure? Yeah, so arteriosclerosis is the medical term for that hardening and thickening of the arteries that uh, I discussed earlier. And so, uh, as I said earlier, uh, arteriosclerosis um, is the hardening and thickening of the arteries. It's, a, it's an age-related change. Um, however, it's worsened with environmental exposures that 
cause inflammation, aging of the heart vessels or the cardiovascular vessels and heart arteries in general, um, whether that be uh, smoking or high blood pressure or diabetes. But um, in general, um, it, it's a thickening and, uh, and stiffening of the vessels that lead them to be less compliant and uh, producing um, higher blood pressures as a result. And so arteriosclerosis is really more the blood vessels. So let's go to heart disease. How, how do you, as a uh, healthcare provider in cardiology, define heart disease and the early signs that you see? Yeah, yeah. So the, the term heart disease is a large uh, umbrella term that captures um, both uh poor functioning of the heart muscle or diseases of the heart muscle itself um, that can either be caused by uh, ischemic disease. And this is a term in which there's poor blood flow to the heart muscle due to narrowed or blocked coronary arteries or non-ischemic disease, um, uh, which is related to um, a variety of conditions, um, kind of a little more too exhaustive than, than we would be able to get into in, in, in this uh, in this interview at this point, but just to kind of broadly say this would be conditions of uh, unregulated hypertension relating to heart failure, um, cardiac arrhythmias, infections of the heart, um, cardiac valve problems, uh, autoimmune disease, um, uh, so on and so forth. It's quite a bit of, uh, of ground to cover on that one, but, but really kind of focusing back on what's typically discussed as heart disease um, with uh, ischemic heart disease is kind of where I wanted to take this is coronary artery disease. And this is basically the presence of um, the arteriosclerosis we mentioned, the hardening and the stiffing of the arteries that feed the blood vessel, plus the addition of plaque um, or narrowing of uh, the blood vessels, um, producing poor blood flow to the heart muscle. And review again the early signs that would... Uh, indicate that a person has heart disease? Yeah. Yeah. Classically speaking, uh, for someone who has uh, atherosclerosis of the coronary arteries, and this is uh, narrowing of blood vessels to feed the heart muscle, um, classic symptomology is going to be um, symptoms that are produced on exertion. And this is when the, when the heart is um, demanding more blood and oxygen. This is during times of exercise or emotional distress. Um, and classically has been described as chest discomfort, usually lasting minutes on the left side of the chest. Um, this is thought to be more of a dull type of pain. This isn't like a brief kind of pins thing, but a dull pressure or pain on the left side of the chest. Uh, this pain can radiate the, the jaw, neck, or the left arm, often with a numbness component. Uh, it can also be enjoined by other symptoms such as uh, shortness of breath, uh, nausea, uh, lightheadedness, or dizziness. And of course, uh, everyone is a little bit different. These symptoms would manifest themselves in, in, in different patients differently, but um, classic hallmark is, is uh, these kind of uh, constellation of symptoms with physical exertion or emotional distress. Okay. Well, this is a good place to stop. We're talking with Drew Martin, the nurse practitioner with the Cardiology Physician Group at Virginia Hospital Center. And you're listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. 
Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. We are talking with Drew Martin, a nurse practitioner with the Cardiology Physician Group at Virginia Hospital Center. And we got a great overview of cardiovascular disease and uh, all that's associated with it. And now we want to talk about seeing your doctor and what kinds of information we should know. And so, Drew, let's start out by asking you, what should older adults ask their doctors about their risk for heart disease? What, what do you and, and your colleagues uh, want to know? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, um, you know, something that's, I think, taking a very good um, history is always important. Um, uh, there's a lot of testing that we do, but upfront, knowing a patient's history and family and social history is very key and very crucial um, to determining the right type of uh, testing or right approach. Um, you know, I think that uh, uh, particularly first-degree family members um, that have had a history of heart attack or stroke um, prior to age 65, that's considered an early presentation. So if you've got closely related family members that have had um, cardiac events or strokes prior to age 65, that would be an important piece of information to share. Um, the other thing is just having a very um, candid discussion about um, your current uh, level of, of exercise and activity levels. I think that's very important. Um, uh, you know, uh, if um, somebody was highly active, they're a tennis player, um, they're very physically active or they're doing a lot of walking or, or working out um, at any age range, um, the, the lack of um, reportable chest discomfort or shortness of breath with your usual activities is, is very reassuring, right? Um, and so just because someone comes into the office and says, well, I'm, you know, I'm feeling good, I don't have chest discomfort, I'm shortness of breath, any of those symptoms, um, even if their EKG is fairly benign, if they're not um, highly physically active, um, it, it just it gives us less reassurance from a risk standpoint. So being very honest about your, your physical activity levels, um, uh, the other thing that I think is, um, you know, everyone is going to come at this from a different kind of uh, perspective um, when it comes to thoughts on medicine. Um, I think that what we're seeing in both the guidelines and, and kind of the best practices is taking as much of an individualized approach to medical therapy as possible. And so, um, you know, there isn't a one size fits all. Um, if we'll get into it later, I'm sure talking about the different medicines that are commonly prescribed, but um, certain people have different value systems um, and uh, regarding certain types of medicines or treatments and just being very upfront with your physician so that, um, you know, the benefit of having a physician that specializes in cardiovascular health is to come up with an, an individualized plan that not only uh, reduces risk, um, ultimately to give you the best quality of life and the longest life, um, but also, you know, kind of consistent with uh, the kind of treatment that you'd want. Um, and so 
I think taking a being very honest about your your own personal family history, your activity levels um, is very important. Um, uh, obviously, other basic history would be comorbidities that increase the risk of cardiovascular disease, like high cholesterol or, or diabetes um, and things like that. And the other thing that I was also concerned about is, again, as a woman, might I have a greater risk uh, than uh, a male? Or if I'm white as opposed to African-American or Caucasian, do I have an increased risk? Uh, what do you see? That's a good question. You know, I think there is a lot of the reason why um, perhaps uh, cardiovascular disease or coronary disease is kind of maybe uh, not diagnosed um, as readily um, in, in the female population. It's just from a prevalence standpoint, 60% plus of, you know, about basically the one, almost a one ratio, cardiovascular disease is much more likely in men. And that still is today the case, but um, that still leaves um, a lot of women that still have cardiovascular disease, still have coronary artery disease. And the presentation may not be um, as the typical kind of left-sided chest pain and classical angina. Um, I've had patients in which um, lightheaded and dizziness and confusion was kind of the, the first symptom. And these have been in, uh, in female patients um, in which, you know, the first thought was maybe they have a urinary tract infection or they have, um, maybe this is an early sign of dementia, but ultimately peeling, uh, things back and, and doing diagnostic testing led us to, to find out that these symptoms were actually more cardiovascular in nature and were related to heart disease. And so I think that, um, well, you know, from an absolute sense, uh, cardiovascular disease is vastly more common in men. I, I think that there really is a place where we need to do a lot more research on what does angina look like in the female patient. And I think um, left-sided chest is typical classical radiating features is something less, much less observed in the female population. Um, I can say that both anecdotally and it's, that's, there's some studies that have backed that up. Um, as far as kind of the cultural racial kind of landscape, um, uh, certain populations have higher rates of diabetes, um, uh, high cholesterol and other kind of risk factors than say, um, the kind of more traditional population that was studied initially coming out of the Framingham trial, like the Caucasian population was mostly studied in that trial going back many decades. But that said, um, probably a larger disparity, uh, disparity is really a matter of um, uh, good preventative medicine. And so while the rates of coronary artery disease actually aren't substantially different among racial groups, there are some differences. The outcomes remain pretty different, um, in which particularly the African-American and Hispanic population have worse outcomes with the same disease. Um, I think that is partially um, a matter of um, try, lack of, of good primary care or preventative medicine, and then also um, potentially um, an issue of um, poor kind of post-hospital follow-up care, which also is, you know, um, just as important to ensure that you get a durable, um, uh, a durable solution um, even after you've had, say, heart surgery or an intervention or been put on medicines for heart disease. Um, and so there is a disparity there. And um, 
And I, I think that's kind of where uh, primary care doctors and particularly my role here in the clinic, um, working to support the cardiologist to, you know, make sure the patients are on appropriate medical therapy to prevent uh, recurrence or worsening of heart disease. That's, that's very helpful in terms of then learning more about risk. And now when people come to see you and, and the physicians there, what kinds of medical tests are used to, to diagnose heart disease? We've talked a lot about blood pressure already, but uh, what other tests do you use to determine whether somebody might have heart disease? Yeah, this is a good question. Uh, bro- broadly speaking, uh, testing for coronary disease is divided into non-invasive testing and invasive testing. Generally speaking, uh, absent uh, high likelihood of disease in which we need to act very quickly, uh, non-invasive testing is typically what's, what's ordered in the office setting. Um, this is stress testing, and, a, and it could be as simple as a treadmill stress test. This is where we have a patient go on a treadmill and we basically just put an EKG on their chest that they wear continuously while on a treadmill. And we see that when they exercise, whether we can provoke electrical changes consistent with poor blood flow to the heart muscle during exercise. Um, for people who cannot tolerate the treadmill or we're looking for a little bit of a more specific or um, study, um, there are other types of tests. Um, there are tests using nuclear medicine in which um, a radio tracer dye is injected and we're able to look on the camera to see how that dye goes into the heart muscle. That's called a nuclear cardiac stress test. It's commonly ordered as well. And, and then also high fidelity CT scanning in which uh, a patient undergoes a CT scan that can very accurately visualize coronary arteries um, is also considered. All, all broadly speaking, these are tests that don't require any kind of invasive, um, uh, invasive um, approach to diagnose heart disease. Um, and then um, the, the second approach to diagnose coronary artery disease, and it's kind of a definitive gold standard, would be a left coronary angiogram. And this is um, where an uh, artery is accessed, usually the wrist or sometimes in the groin, and um, a catheter is placed, and um, X-ray kind of IV contrast or X-ray dye is, is injected in a um, live X-ray called fluoroscopy is used to watch how this dye flows into the blood vessels of the heart. Um, The benefit of the invasive um, angiography of invasive coronary testing is that if there is a problem, uh, that can be addressed um, at that time, uh, either by uh, ballooning the blood. There's various approaches, but essentially uh, to restore blood flow to the heart muscle. All right. And we've been talking about different types of cardiovascular disease, and I don't want to spend too much time on that because I want to ask you about medication and treatment and a number of other questions. But the conditions that seem to be most prevalent among older adults are coronary artery disease, myocardial infarction, and heart failure. And I realize I'm throwing a lot at you, but are these three the primary conditions that you see the most amongst older adults? Yes. Um, yes, they are. I mean, I think going to that, that coronary artery disease, which is essentially the, the plaque, uh, placking and narrowing of the uh, blood vessels that feed the heart muscle. You know, this is a condition that quite rare um, in younger adults. By the time maybe you get to about age 60, it affects possibly about one-fifth of all men, and maybe 
slightly less than 10% of women. Uh, by the time you get in the mid-80s, this is about maybe one-third or slightly more of males and um, somewhere close to about 20% of females. And so, you know, um, so across the, even amongst older adults, right, I mean, in the 60 to 65 age range, um, this might be uh, 10 to 20% um, female to male, respectively. And then by the time you're 85, this would be a 20 to 34, 35% female to male, respectively. As far as uh, heart attacks, um, you know, having coronary artery disease, um, if uh, there's an acute narrowing of the blood vessel, usually due to a, a ruptured plaque within the lining of the blood vessel, um, that can set off a, a cascade of inflammation that can uh, rob the heart of blood and oxygen and produce a heart attack. Um, and then that is a very common, uh, a common condition that we, we treat in the hospital. Uh, through both medicine and interventional approaches. And then um, depending on the amount of the heart muscle that was involved and the timing of the heart attack, um, sometimes the heart muscle itself is, is, is weakened. And um, we treat heart failure kind of in the post-heart attack setting. So we see kind of the continuum of those three conditions. And just to clarify, because we often hear the, the myocardial infarction, is, is that the same as a heart attack? Yeah, yeah, myocardial infarction, heart attack are synonymous terms. Um, broadly speaking, a, a myocardial infarction um, can be caused by what's called an acute coronary syndrome, and this is where there's a plaque rupture or an acute narrowing of the blood vessel that feeds the heart muscle on um, one of the coronary arteries. Um, this is typically treated with uh, medicines to thin the blood, um, medicines to reduce the oxygen demands of the heart, whether this be various blood pressure medicines, nitrates, um, and then, you know, definitively through uh, uh, getting, uh, pushing plaque out of the way to restore blood flow down the vessel through angioplasty or, or stenting, and in some cases, depending on technical anatomy issues, potentially even open heart surgery. Um, uh, although there are other reasons why someone can have a heart attack that aren't related to this. Um, someone can have a heart attack if someone had a major bleeding event and had very low blood counts. There would be very little blood and oxygen that could reach the heart muscle and independent of coronary artery disease could have a heart attack. Or if somebody took certain drugs or substances that caused their, uh, like cocaine, for instance, that caused their blood pressure to go very high, it could put huge demands on the muscle and, and cause a heart attack in that manner as well. So there, and, and there's many other ways in between. But classically, when we talk about uh, coronary artery disease, we're talking about uh, ruptured plaques in the arteries. All right. Well, that I know there's so much to explain here, and I want to make sure that we, we cover a very important topic that a lot of people know about and are on, and that's statins. So explain what statins are. Is Are statins always the treatment of choice to prevent heart disease? How does it help the heart? Side effects? Give us an overview of, of that medication that seems so common in the cardiology field. Yeah, so the statin class in medicine um, was approved primarily for the effect of lowering um, uh, cholesterol, and particularly lowering low-density uh, lipoproteins, or LDL cholesterol. Um, there was a hypothesis um, that out of all the cholesterol components, it was the LDL that was the most implicated in um, 
promoting the, the formation of unstable plaque in the arteries in the development of atherosclerosis. And that patients who had lower LDLs, and this is coming back to Framingham as well, um, had less stroke or heart attack. And so prior to statins, there'd been other medicines that have lowered um, the, the LDL levels, but then statins came along and they noticed that not only these medicines lower the LDL levels, but they also had even, a, these patients had even a lower level of heart attack or stroke um, than other similar medicines um, that lowered the LDL. And um, it was postulated that part of it was that the statins had a heavy anti-inflammatory effect, particularly on a process called oxidation, in which um, this bad cholesterol, this LDL, can become very inflammatory in the lining of the blood vessels. And the statins um, block some of this uh, some of this enzymatic activity. Um, in general, uh, statins are still the gold standard and really kind of the medicine of choice for anyone in what we call secondary prevention. These are people who have had a heart attack or had a stroke and we're trying to prevent uh, the, the condition from worsening or coming back. Right? In primary prevention, this is for patients um, who have, don't, we don't know if they have heart disease. Maybe they're just older and have risk factors. Um, it is a little bit more of an individualized approach. Um, you really weigh the other uh, risks and the reversibility of those risks. Um, and you, you weigh them to decide on whether or not statins are appropriate. Um, uh, this is a fast-evolving field. Um, there's actually even some newer medicines that have come online relatively recently that are kind of a little bit challenging statins to some degree because they're now showing very similar levels of efficacy um, that, are, that are injections. But in general, I would say um, statins are still the, the gold standard uh, for secondary prevention, but for primary prevention, it's more of an individualized um, approach. Um, as far as side effects are concerned, um, this is back to the careful medical history. Um, patients with an increased risk or known history of liver dysfunction, or pancreatic dysfunction, you need to be very careful with the statin class of medicines, um, um, but that's not necessarily prohibitive. Um, we typically have observed um, side effects, uh, gastrointestinal side effects, uh, nausea, upset stomach, um, muscle aches um, are probably the most commonly described uh, side effects, and these are often dose-dependent, um, meaning that even if uh, a patient has this on one statin, there may be another uh, medicine in the class with, with the, that would be better tolerated. Could patients, even if they were on statin therapy, they could still have a heart attack or a stroke or other cardiovascular issues? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, all of these medicines um, act on one or a couple kind of narrow pathways to reduce the risk of um, a heart artery disease, but they, just like heart artery disease doesn't form in isolation, um, preventing the risk won't happen in isolation. Um, you know, uh, um, you know, if, if uh, a person is able to achieve uh, marked weight loss and reduce their cholesterol naturally, reduce their blood pressure naturally, reduce their insulin resistance and diabetes naturally, um, that would that would undoubtedly have a better overall risk reduction than being on a statin alone and maybe not being able to achieve those things. But that saying, that said, it's an important tool in the toolbox to reduce risk. Um, 
in terms of cholesterol, and it's it's really the kind of the the, the best we have at this point. All right. Well, the other question that I would re- be remiss if I didn't ask you was what we just read about in the papers from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, their recommendations that doctors no longer routinely start uh, people at high risk of heart disease on a daily regimen of low-dose aspirin. So give us a little background on that and and how should folks respond to these these findings? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question too. And that, and that kind of goes back to kind of the general thrust, what we're seeing in medicine is, is trying to take things away from kind of a broad strokes uh, uh, guideline directed medicine, medical therapy to something that's more individualized and patient centered. Um, actually, uh, the, the preventative services, the preventative uh, task force guidelines actually are taking the stance on aspirin in line with what cardiologists have been practicing when the American College of Cardiology came out with their most recent guidelines in 2019, which essentially says that um, aspirin really should be provided to people for secondary prevention. These are people who've been already had strokes or heart attacks, but the primary prevention use of aspirin needs to be individualized. Um, It cannot be kind of a broad strokes, you reach an age, that declares that someone should be on this medicine. Um, uh, the, the primary reason is, is that I think first and foremost is that um, aspirin is not a benign medicine. Um, it has a risk uh, of bleeding, particularly if someone has a personal history of, of, of bleeding and, and uh, particularly gastric ulcers or um, certainly uh, any bleeding in the brain, these kind of things would be uh, prohibitive to aspirin almost outright. Um, and then, the other things to consider very closely is, um, you know, someone who's age 61 years old um, with no cardiovascular risk factors and no personal history of heart disease, nor having any family members with heart disease is at a vastly different risk than someone, you know, even, you know, say four or five years older who um, maybe has uh, uncontrolled diabetes, um, uh, maybe has never been formal, formally diagnosed with heart disease, but has many close first-degree family members with heart disease and has had, say, incidentally on CT scans for other indications, we've noticed evidence of calcium along the blood vessels, which would suggest the same, right, that potentially there would be some heart disease. And so while both of these individuals that I just named here theoretically um, have never been formally diagnosed with coronary artery disease and into Thought, the thought to give them aspirin would be basically figured along the lines of risk reduction for a future event. They both have vastly different risks on an individual level when one really looks at the patient as an individual. So I think that's the, the takeaway from the guideline is that basically what the task force is saying is they want you to have a real and thoughtful conversation with your doctor, cardiologist, or provider about the risk benefits with aspirin and to kind of get away from kind of the one-size-fits-all approach. All right. Well, I wanted to spend a little time and hear what you tell your patients about preventing heart disease. Uh, Give us an overview of what you tell your patients about the importance of these various uh, measures to prevent them from having uh, a a heart attack. Yeah. So, Broadly speaking, um, 
you know, this is the focus on the part that we control, right? There's a lot that we can't control. Um, we can't control genetics. We can't control the fact that we're aging. Um, both of these things are typically working against us in terms of our cardiovascular risk. Um, and so the focus is on what can we actually control and modify. Um, and if you think about it, kind of the 40,000 foot view is, is that the risk factors associate with heart disease is high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and diabetes. Smoking and some other things can contribute as well, but as far as it's, it's, it's interesting from a medical phenomenon, you see that this high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and diabetes, these three conditions often will cluster together in a patient. Um, and really the common denominator, aside from aging and genetics, often is going to be weight gain. Um, and what we'll see is that imagine the risk for cardiovascular disease related to these risk factors is much like a tree. Um, and each branch of the tree might be described as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and diabetes. And you can take medicine to reduce the risk. You can take medicine to kind of clip a branch back. But in the end, the root of the matter is that, uh, uh, is that the weight gain has likely precipitated these events to a pretty good margin. And so anything you can do to actually reduce your weight, you will often see an improvement in all of these things um, independent of the medicine. In fact, it's, we'll often see patients be liberated from some of these medicines um, just on account of significant weight loss if that's an issue. Um, uh, and so what I would say is um, uh, lower carbohydrate approach diet is probably one of the most useful things um, as the high sugar diet seems to be highly influential in both uh, insulin resistance and diabetes, as well as high levels of low density cholesterol. Um, and the second would be exercise. Um, uh, you know, there's really three factors that we can control and exercise. This is something, you know, I'm a high school football coach telling me it's really a matter of frequency and intensity and duration. So broadly speaking, we want that frequency to be five times a week, right? Um, we want that duration to be really guided by intensity. So if you're doing kind of moderate intensity activities, 150 minutes of, of exercise a week, if the intensity is higher, you probably could get away with 75 minutes, but um, you know, that's going to be the, the three things, um, kind of assessing your activity levels and going, well, am I exercising frequently enough? Um, am I exercising long enough? And um, am I bringing the right level of intensity? And then you combine that with, a lower sugar approach diet. And I think those are the, the, the kind of the mainstays to really attack the root of the, of the issue. And I think that you would also emphasize uh, managing stress as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Stress management. That's a challenging one, right? Because that's going to be something that's different for every individual. Um, that's one of those things where um, certain people manage stress different ways. Um, I think that uh, some people would benefit from, uh, counseling. Um, other people uh, potentially benefit from medicines, but I, I don't think that um, that's that's certainly a place where a one-size-fits-all approach would not be would would not be one either. I certainly am not an advocate. That there's any one specific way to do that. I would just say being open and having a good relationship with your your, your primary care doctor to discuss kind of ways to improve uh, stress management. Okay. Well, any quick 
resources that um, people should know about that you have used yourself or that you uh, convey to your, your patients? I think the kind of most to the point uh, and um, accurate resources out there that I would recommend, I would say broadly speaking, when we talk about the heart, um, the American Heart Association, the AHA, is really the gold standard. Um, uh, I, I think they have a whole bunch of great resources and a lot really for the, the non-medical provider. Um, so I would say www.heart.org is a good resource. Um, other resources that I think are useful um, would be uh, there is the American College of Cardiology. Um, they have a really interesting 10-year uh, cardiovascular risk calculator. This is something that's a validated tool often used by physicians to look at a patient's medical history um, and, and kind of make the determination on uh, whether or not they would potentially benefit from certain medicines. And so that can be found at www.acc.org. Um, that's American College of Cardiology. I like that a lot. And you can kind of play around with that and go, well, you know, if I was able to get these numbers better, um, how would that impact um, certain things? And I think that's nice. Um, and then uh, other than that, um, let's see, there's a, there's a website called dietdoctor.com that I think is a good website. Um, that uh, provides some insight on kind of the lower sugar approach diet. They have a great visual guide that, that actively shows you the kind of sugar um, content um, in, in various foods. Um, to, so you could kind of, it's promoting kind of a, a regular foods approach, but just making better choices as far as sugar. Yeah, I think those are, those would be great places to start. All right. Well, I want to thank Drew Martin, nurse practitioner with the Cardiology Physician Group at Virginia Hospital Center, for joining me today. If you want to learn about Aging Matters, best way to do so is to log on to agingmattersonline.com. There you can access all of the Aging Matters radio and TV show content, as well as the podcasts on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, you can learn more about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Thank you.